And welcome to out of left field. Mississippi State trying to bounce back this coming week. They went on the road this past weekend, lost two of three at Long Beach State. Bart Gregory, Charlie Winfield, appreciate you hanging out with us on Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. This first segment brought to you by our good friends at Farm Bureau. Go with the home team. And, uh, Charlie, looking back at this uh, this week, and it was a weekend where it could have gone well. When you, when you really look at it from a general overall scheme, if State is able to win that Sunday game, you feel really good about going out west and winning two out of three against a Long Beach State team who has had a great start to their season. But just looking back, Friday night really set the tone, losing 4 nothing, being one hit against Long Beach State. It did, and you go back, and obviously there's going to be a lot of discussion about pitching rotation and things of that nature. But I went back and looked. You give up four runs in that ball game. If you do that in a typical Friday night in the SEC, what you would say is, well, you're not going to win that many. But in truth, Mississippi State, I think, wins six of their ten Friday night games in league play last year, holding the opponent to four runs and tie the other. So the bottom line is even in a day, on a day, where you need to have good pitching, I think you had it good enough. The story was you only got one hit, you only walked twice, and you just didn't get guys on bases. In six of the nine innings, you allow your opponent to face the minimum. You send only three guys to the plate, and it's tough, tough to win a ball game when you do that. Well, you're just looking back, and you, and you see how the first inning went, and you know, they had the, the right-hander out there, and who had been really good, um, you know, Seminaris, Adam Seminaris, left-hander, and he goes eight innings. He had great numbers coming in, but that first inning, he gets a, a fly out, he walks Westberg, and then gets back-to-back strikeouts. Okay, well, then in the bottom of the first inning, you get the infield single to get it started, and then with two outs, you get the two-run single by by Mom, Aiden Mom, and they take a 2 nothing lead, and so – Long Beach State able to set the tone in the first inning off of you. And so then you look at our – And they do it with a two-out hit. They do it with a two-out two hit. The two-out hit is the key to baseball, and they got it. They got two RBIs with two outs. And it's from the five-hole hitter. And so that happens. How do you respond to that? And then you look at State in the second through the fifth inning. Second through the fifth inning, you couldn't get anybody on base at all. And, and you look at the number of pitches. Seminaris – when you come out, he's pitching with a lead. He threw 43 pitches in innings two through five, okay? 13, 6, 12, and 12. You look to average right at 15 pitches per inning. That's what you like to get if you're a pitcher. But he got well under that. He got 17 pitches under that 60 in innings two through five. And all of a sudden, a 2 nothing lead seems almost insurmountable. And allowed under on average under 13 pitches an inning and getting the win and you go back and look, and there was never a real threat at any point in that ball game for Mississippi State. You just had nothing doing at all offensively. And, look, Seminaris was was good, but you just never had a chance other than, uh, you know, perhaps in the sixth inning. You got a single from Leggett to start the inning, and then you are able to advance on a wild pitch. You get a walk. Now you've got two guys on. You're coming to the top of the order. That's where your threat, if you had one, came, and instead you get a fly out on a 2-0 pitch and then a ground out. Looking back, and before you go any further, you have to look at the numbers. 
and without JT again for the second consecutive weekend, you go Carlisle Kessler on Friday, and you look at the overall start by Carlisle. Yes, he gives up that two-run single in the first inning, but what a great job he did of settling things down. He retired 15 in a row from the first inning all the way through the sixth, gives up the leadoff single in the seventh inning, and you know you give up a couple of runs in the seventh. All of a sudden, 2 nothing becomes 4 nothing. That's pretty much all she wrote. But Carlisle went six in the third. He was charged for all four of the runs on six hits, two strikeouts, no walks, did a good job of getting balls put in play. And so that was a big key for Carlisle in the game. Dunlavey came in, pitched an inning in the third, gave up no runs on two hits, two strikeouts and two walks. And then Jackson Forrester pitched the final third to get out of it. But Adam Seminaris, he was the story of game one. No runs, one hit. 10 strikeouts and two walks. And then uh, Harrison pitched a 1-2-3, actually walked a guy in the ninth inning. So he faced four batters in the ninth inning and threw 20 pitches. But Seminaris here early in the year went 102 pitches, and he was just almost unhittable. Yeah, and I thought the real turning point was in the seventh inning. When Long Beach State put those two runs on the board, that's when it was over. They got a, a single and then a line out, but then they got the double that scored the run to, to add the third. Then you have the throwing error. It wouldn't have mattered because there was a hit that followed it anyway. But it felt like you didn't have much chance down 2-0, but you've always got the hope for a bloop and a blast, as they say. Just something gets its way through and somebody drives the ball out. It's You can't bloop and a blast your way to a four-run inning. And, Charlie, we talked about it last week before we went out there. It's always tough to play game one on the road on the West Coast. In any sport. In any sport. And you can go back, think back a year ago when Mississippi State's men's basketball team went out to Las Vegas to play Arizona. And they were terrible that first game, played better after that. When you have to go West to play a team for the from the West, it's very difficult. And we, we said that last week that that Friday game, was going to be trouble, and as it turned out, it was. And then Saturday rolls around. You come out, you get the leadoff single from Rowdy Jordan. You finally kind of break the ice a little bit. You get Foskey with an, an intentional walk. You fail to score in the first inning of that game on Saturday. And then all of a sudden in the second, the third, and the fourth, you kind of do what you did the day before, and that's let Alfredo Ruiz, a left-hander for Long Beach State, kind of get in a rhythm at that time. All the while, McLeod once again was great in his start. Christian went five innings, no runs, one hit. And then in the sixth inning, the top of the six, you're talking about a scoreless game, able to bunch things together. And we've said all season long, it seems like that's been the big key. It seems like the hitting has been there sporadically, but it's been the inability to piece things together. You get the leadoff single from Rowdy Jordan to right field. Westberg lines the single to left field. And then Tanner Allen triples into right center field. They misplay it, and then all three of the runs score. We had a 3 nothing lead. Foscue hit the home run. We let 4 nothing in the sixth inning. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, all right, we didn't play well last night. Now we've come to play. Yeah, and you go back to that outing by Christian McLeod. What did we say about McLeod in our season preview? We compared him a little bit to Ethan Small, not in build, but in the way that fastball will ride and stay up in the zone. You could see that in the results. Obviously, he had five strikeouts. Long Beach State flies out nine times, grounds out only once. What it tells you is they just could not see McLeod's pitches, and they couldn't get on top of it, and he ends up having the kind of outing you need. I'll compare him to Small in one other way. What did we say so many times last year about Ethan? He was great for five innings. He was great for six innings, but you saw that pitch count kind of work its way up. 
He did throw 91 pitches in five innings. No way you're sending him back out. But McLeod gave you a good outing. And then Will Bednar, looking like the guy that you hoped he would be, pitches four innings, strikes out six. Yeah, Bednar has been somewhat of a surprise. I mean, so much has been talked about in preseason when you talk about right-handed freshmen was about Landon Sims. Now, so Landon has been very good as well. But Will Bednar has thrown strikes. He had six strikeouts and no walks in that game on Saturday. But then he's able to pitch with a lead. He's able to pitch with a 4 nothing lead. We come back in the seventh inning, get the leadoff double from Josh Hatcher, an infield single by Rowdy Jordan, get the sacrifice fly, then another double, an RBI double from Tanner Allen. It, uh, Brandon Pimentel had an RBI single in the inning, and then Cameron James a, a, an RBI double. We scored four more times as 8 nothing, And so we add one more run in the eighth inning and win it 9 nothing. So you felt good at that time is, hey, we didn't play well on Friday, ran against a very good left-hander. We kind of come back and even this thing up. So you feel good about the weekend at that point. Well, and what are the odds, by the way, that we play another game this year where the opponent has a player named Pimentel? That uh, had me thrown off all game long because I couldn't tell whether Pimentel doing something was good or bad. I normally could tell, but I thought it was I thought it was nice to see us bounce back. I actually felt really good going into Sunday because of the way we had those a couple of explosive innings, and you feel like all of a sudden maybe it was just a little bit of a travel effect and that we were ready to go on Sunday. And then you turn the page to Sunday, and in the first inning, you put two on the board, and you think, hey, man, we're about to take two out of three, and what looked really bad on Friday night is going to feel really good on Sunday. Yeah, two-run single by Cameron James in the first inning of the game on Sunday, and the starter in Ramirez, who had been good early in the year, he was 1-0, and and you get two quick runs off of him. He throws 22 pitches in the first inning, you come back, do a great job in the bottom half. Sarantola gives up a hit batsman with two outs, but trying to steal second. And Logan Tanner throws a guy out at second base. Back-to-back hits in the second inning for Long Beach State. You leave runners at second and third because Sarantola is able to pitch out of that. You throw a guy out at the plate and uh, trying to double steal. So you led two to nothing in the game going to the third inning. And then Long Beach State, and then we, we talk about Sarantola, who was good. His, his numbers were good. He gave up four runs, two earned on eight hits. He struck out four. He walked two. He hit a batter. But for the most part, did okay, 83 pitches. But it was a two-out walk in the third and then you give up the two-run single, a two-out RBI single in the third inning, and that gets Long Beach State on the board. But then you look in the fourth inning, and then a leadoff triple, a play that Tanner Allen is trying to make a die for going toward the line, rolls up under on his wrist. Not sure if it was wrist or hand. You don't know how long he's going to be out. And so you had to bring him out of the game. I think that's one of the things that Chris Lamonis is going to talk about here later in this week about what we expect to see out of Tanner Allen going you know, short-term and then possibly long-term. But you lose Tanner, and you lose him in right field. You lose him at the plate. And that was kind of an emotional blow. You give up the run in that inning, a RBI single with, uh, with an out in the inning. You're tied at two. But all the while, you flip the page and you look at what you're doing offensively. Yeah, you had – Ramirez kind of on the ropes in the first inning, throwing 22 pitches. And then in the next three innings, he goes 11 pitches in the second, 10 pitches in the third, and then eight pitches in the fourth. What that allows him to do is get his, his legs up, back up under him a little bit, and then all of a sudden he's pitching in a tie game. Yeah, and compared to Sarantola, for example, Sarantola 
put him, look, he pitched well, but he also put himself in some spots where he had to work very hard early. We talked to Eric DeBose about that idea just a couple of weeks ago. When you have to labor really hard early in a ball game to get out of an inning, you may get through that, but what it does is it keeps you from going in the sixth. It keeps you from going in the seventh. I thought we saw a little bit of that. And give credit to Long Beach State. The thing they did all week, all weekend, they just did not allow themselves very often to be retired in order. No. They did not have – how many times do you go back this weekend where they got the two-out hit? It never crosses the plate. It never even advances to second, but it forces that one more hitter. It forces those few more pitches. In fact, 14 times Mississippi State sent the minimum to the plate in an inning. Long Beach did it six times all weekend. Unbelievable. I, I look back at a big point in the game. Fifth inning, you're tied at two. We get the leadoff single from Josh Hatcher. He goes to second on a wild throw. A single through the right side by Logan Tanner. And so then you kind of got the table set. You're feeling really good about yourself. And then Rowdy Jordan at the plate. And, um, you know, Rowdy's at the plate. He's ahead 2-0, and I thought the pitch of the game, you start start talking about little things, about sequential things. The 2-0 fastball that was on the inside corner of the knees, and Rowdy went down and fouled it off. But you get 2-1, and then the right-hander, Ramirez, throws five straight sliders that nobody touches. Two more to Rowdy, three to Jordan Westberg, and that was pretty much the last time you had a really good chance. Then they come back, they score a couple of runs in – and uh, take that 4-2 to two lead with two runs in the fifth inning. In the bottom half of that inning, add a run to it in the seventh, add a run to it in the eighth, and win it 6-2. So all in all, State loses 6-2 on Sunday and now 7-4. and four. Did not play a midweek game this week, of course. Washed on Wednesday night against Southern Miss. And so the Bulldogs will play Quinnipiac on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We'll kind of set that table for you later in the show. When we come back, we'll have a look-back segment on our country-pleasing sausage look back at Bulldog history. You're listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Back on Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Go with the home team. Check them out at favorites.com. It's time now for our Look Back segment brought to you each week by Country Pleasing Sausage. Country Pleasing, made in Mississippi, the best product you can possibly have as far as sausage. They've got all these different kinds. Charlie, I think I've got you hooked. It's amazing. It has many tweets as we get throughout the week of people who are trying Country Pleasing for the first time. And they say, hey, let me tell you. This is awesome. We never had a chance to, to try this, and it's great. And appreciate you putting us on to it. And so we appreciate our friends down in uh, Florence, Henry Cooper and the gang at Country Pleasing Sausage. And so, Charlie, our look back segment this week. You know, last week we kind of did a dive into the 1997 regional here in Startville. And one of the things we get some feedback on each time we broadcast a game is – you guys just banner back and forth a good bit. How about we just banner back and forth? <laughs> well, you know, when you and I were talking about doing this show, one of the things that just got us started was talking about the different things that we remembered as a kid. And so instead of focusing on games or regionals, I thought it would be interesting just to kind of go a little bit broader. One of the things I'm always interested in talking to people about their experience, and I'll ask you this question, is everybody, it seems, has that moment 
for them. That moment where they were at Duty Noble Field and they remember, that's the one, if you said, what is Duty Noble to you? It's their moment. I'm curious, what, what is your moment at Duty Noble? Well, uh, this is going to be somewhat cheesy. And I'm going to go with an easy answer. And people are going to say, of course, but the 1990 Burke Masters Grand Slam. I thought that was, I thought that was my moment in Mississippi State history. And, and there are reasons behind that. And, and not many people remember. It's when you start talking to younger people, they, they hear about Jim Ellison back, back in the Grand Slam for Masters, and they don't understand the context of what that home run really meant. You look in 85, you thought you had a chance to win a national championship, and everybody thought you could have and should have won the national championship. Had it not been for a line drive, you probably do win the national championship. You had to regroup in 86. You hosted regionals in 87, 88, and 89. Of course, in 87, that was when Oklahoma State came in here, the guy mooned up, everybody in the outfield. Anthony Blackman. Absolutely. Then in 88 – you know, you play Cal State Fullerton, who comes in here as a one seed. Brett Main and Keith Cobb were on that team. And then uh, Pete Young has to pitch like five innings in a 12-inning game. That was the elimination game. And then, of course, in 89, when you had probably the best team in the country, and North Carolina comes in here, and they knock you off. And so the next year, you, you still, you know, in 1990, you still had that fresh taste of that loss against North Carolina. You come into the regional, and – you beat BYU, you win against, you know, whoever. You win the first two games. Illinois, John Shave hit a walk-off home run or hit a home run late in that game, the second round. And then you play Florida State. And the thing about Florida State, they came out that day, Chris George drew the start, and they jumped on top 3 nothing. I remember this like it was yesterday. Okay? I remember this. <laughs> they jump on top 3 to, no- three to nothing. And so from a Mississippi State fan, you're sitting there going, here we go again. I mean, this – we're doomed – I mean, what's what's buried underneath this field out here? And then you work your way back. You get back in the game. You get the bases loaded in the top of the ninth inning. We're the visiting team that day. And Burke had gotten a hit all day. And you're like, he's going to get a hit. We're down by one. We're down 8-7. It's top of the ninth. And then Masters, who everybody liked. He was a player's – I mean, he was a fan favorite type player. And – Math guy, you know, he, he was just – he wasn't in, on a team that was full of, of stars. He was the very studious. He just liked the guy. And all of a sudden, he pops a grand slam home run. And it's almost like, wow, we're about to beat the top-ranked team in the country. Florida State was number one that year. You're about to beat the top-ranked team in the country. And then, boom, there you go. Now, we still had to – that put us in a winner's bracket. We lost the next day and had to win again on Monday. But I just thought – that moment is was my moment because everyone, when you saw the, the crowd go crazy, it was almost like an exhale of, wow, okay, we're going to do this. Not my moment, but it reminds me, though, that was not Burke Masters' first walk-off hit to win a ball game here. The one I remember, 1987, we went to extra <laughs> innings on a Sunday night, ESPN, on TV, and that which was very rare at the time, and – John Paul Gentleman was the name of the second baseman for Ole Miss. Ron Winford came to the plate. I remember the guys on TV talking about, you know, Winford's up there just to bang out a walk as if he could get a hit. <laughs> he had a ground ball base hit between – I want to say it went between third and short. Gets around to second. Burke hits a one-hopper to the second baseman that just kind of ate him up on the right side. He couldn't get in front. 
got into the outfield, we scored. So, obviously, nowhere near. Uh, at the time in 1987, it, feel, it felt like a really big day. But let me tell you my moment. And this wasn't during a game, but you mentioned this, this kind of pressure that had been building through the late 80s, even though you'd won the SEC, even though you were good, to really needing to win in 90. There was a lot of pressure in 1985 because in 1984, I thought we had one of the best teams in the country, and UNO comes in here. Yep. And Weedai hits that home run. This is the year that Palmero hits 29 home runs. Clark hits 28. Weedai hits the home run that beats us, ends our season. And so everybody is just ejected after 84 because after the good 83 season where we nearly beat Texas and get to the World Series – 84 feels like our year, and now you're coming back in 85. Barry Larkin and Michigan are in here, and you lose to Michigan, and it's going to force that Monday game, that winner-take-all deal. And I remember, so I am 12, 13 years old, and you couldn't get me away from this field. I hung out to the point that I was basically a pest. (laughs) But down the left field line, Mississippi State's bullpen, you know, it's kind of outside the bleachers. And I walked over there, and I sat there. It was after the game. There's basically nobody here, and there's Pat McMahon, there's the bullpen catcher, and there's Jeff Brantley, who's going to go the next day. And I remember just sitting there once in my life, quiet and out of the way, watching Jeff Brantley get his mind ready for that next day, loosen up, and he looks at McMahon and says, we got this. And I remember just having this profound moment as a 13-year-old where I was really struck. Of course, you looked up to all these guys anyway, but I was just really struck that something special was about to happen and seeing leadership in action. It was so it didn't happen on the field. It did the next day, but that's a moment that I will never forget. Did you go home? Did you tell all your buddies, hey, Jeff Brantley says we got this? <laughs> yes. Yes, I did. Hey, along those lines, you mentioned that a moment ago about Masters hitting that uh, base hit in 87. And doing what we do for a living and broadcasting TV games, and you can watch every single Tuesday, Wednesday night game. And and looking back, they, that was a big deal. That oh, was a, yeah. That was a big deal. In 1987, ESPN only televised like five games the entire season, and they picked us to play Ole Miss. And that was a that was a big deal. For, for a guy in the country, okay, and, and I mean, I'm not – sometimes I joke around a lot, but – at the end of the day, I grew up in the sticks, and as I've always said, we go toward town to hunt, and that's a true story. We hunt closer to Louisville than we live, okay? And in those days, you had four channels. You had CBS, ABC, CBS, WCBI, WTVA out of Tupelo, and you had WTOK out of Meridian. Then you had PBS, of course, and nobody watched, except for reading Rainbow on, like, you know, every afternoon. But... Some people had satellite dishes. It was those old crank satellite dishes. Oh, yeah. Where you had like seven or eight satellites, you know, and you had like five channels on the satellite, and you had the the manual twist outside. Hey, I'm going to open the window. Y'all tell me when it comes in clear. And we had a watch party for that game at my house. We had all kind of people at my house because Mississippi State was playing baseball on TV. Well, so think about how big a deal it was. And I remember that game because I was here, and it went well into the night. As you will remember. It went like 13 innings, didn't it? Yeah, it lasted forever. Yeah, people were leaving left and right. My dad was threatening to put us to bed, which he didn't. So I remember, and this talks about the power of TV at the time. You know, now people expect to see every game. And in 1985, that didn't happen. 
TV was such a big deal that when we played at Alabama that year, there was a Sunday game and it was televised. We actually bumped Jeff Brantley back from Saturday to Sunday, and he pitched on the TV game. Now, there might have been another reason, but <laughs> common belief was that's, what, that's why he pitched. Now, they did. ESPN came here another time that year when we played LSU, and I yep. think Morgan pitched that, and it was one. That game started great because it was like hit by Van Cleve, hit by uh, Gator Thiessen, double by Palmero, home run by Clark. You know, it just kept rolling around. Kurt Bavacqua, by the way, did the color Bavacqua. because I have a Kurt Bavacqua autographed baseball card at home. Wow. Wow. Okay, so let me ask you this. Just quickly, looking back, special situations. One thing we really haven't talked about, if you had to have a home run, if you talk about Masters and that Grand Slam, you look back at Mississippi State history, and you had to have a home run to walk it off. It's two outs, tie game, or two outs down by one. You got a runner at first base. Who do you want it to play? Well, look, the easy answer, right, is Clark Palmero and people like that. But I'll tell you the one that I remember. The one that I remember standing here, I think it was against Tennessee. Well, it was against Tennessee. There were two outs, and we were down a run with a man on first base. And Tracy Eccles, <laughs> Tracy Eccles hit one out of the park. We walk it off and win. So because I actually have a, an actual memory of that happening, I'm going to go with Tracy Eccles. You know – I would say it would depend on who the pitcher is, if it's a right-hander or a left-handed pitcher. Almost like if you needed a walk-off hit, okay? If, if, it's, a, if it's a right-hander on the mound, I want – you want to say Jeffrey Ray or you want to say, you know, Clipstein, Mike Kelly, Buck Showalter, Clark, Palmero. If I had to have a hit, I know it's recency, but Jake Mangum was as good as anybody, as anybody from the left side. But from a home run standpoint, I put Brian Leninfa. Brian Leninfa batting from the left side against a right-handed pitcher. He was a guy that just had lift and had power. Well, he had a walk-off here, too, and I want to say that it was against Tennessee also, if I remember correctly. So here's one for you. If you had to have a guy to rob a home run late in a ball game in a regional so that you can win in advance, who are you taking? <laughs> Not Brooks Bryant. Okay. Yeah, I'm taking Brooks. I'm taking Brooks. Or Jeff Hunter. Jeff Hunter robbed a home yes. run out here as yes. well. Yes, in fact, he, that's a, actually a really good point. Jeff Hunter was a very good defensive center fielder and robbed uh, robbed a couple before he was done. That was against North Carolina, 2003. Hi, right, Charlie. We'll talk more about this. We'll do more of this, especially on the TV. So uh, that'll do it for our Look Back segment brought to you by Country Pleasing Sausage. Country Pleasing down in Florence, Mississippi. Country pleasing. You've got the jalapeno cheddar. You've got just the old regular, the pork and pineapple. They've got a new, a lot of new brands that are going to come out, so make sure you go by your local grocer. And they're on all the Kroger's and a lot of other grocery stores in the state of Mississippi and the southeast. Country pleasing sausage. Back with more on Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Time now for a new segment this week. 
It's the guest line brought to you by Heartland Catfish, the Heartland Catfish hotline by our great friends over in the Mississippi Delta at Heartland Catfish. And this week, we like to feature the place, no doubt, you can go and get the best catfish in the state of Mississippi. That's Jerry's Catfish House on Highway 49 down in Florence. It's the big igloo. So when you come through Florence, look to your left, and there is Jerry's. And so make sure you go by and get some of that great Heartland catfish at Jerry's Catfish House down in Florence. All right, let's go to the guest line where former Bulldog and member of the Boston Red Sox, Mitch Moreland, joins us on the Heartland Catfish guest line. And, Mitch, I tell you what, we talk all the time about that 2007 Clemson Super Regional. So let's uh, let's beat a dead horse. Let's talk about it again. What Looking back to 2007, I mean, how much fun was that for you as a player? Well, thank you all for having me for one. But, uh, yeah, I mean, one of the probably the happiest kind of moments i guess in my life or my career uh, something i'll never forget obviously you're making lifelong friends there while i was playing there and uh, just like the group we had i think we were picked last in the west that year and kind of overcame a lot of a lot of uh doubts i guess and and talk uh to to go to omaha but you know them coming in i think they had something like 13 guys drafted off of that team and you know we were by far the underdog but came out that first day and I mean, I think they had Moscos maybe starting, and he was, you know, third overall pick or something like yeah. that. And then, uh, you know, beat him, beat him uh, that first day pretty good and then turned around the second day and, you know, got that lead and kind of rolled. And, you know, able I was able to come in and close it out. Just, uh, you know, kind of made some memories I'll never forget. Mitch, when we think back to that regional, I have a couple of memories. One, I remember it seems like every time you came to the plate, there was going to be a double. And I remember you pitching so well. And I remember a distinct argument in the outfield as to whether Mitch Moreland was a major league pitcher or a major league hitter. What goes in a dual position guy like you? How did it end up when you had such a a promising pitching future as well? How did you end up going down the hitting route? (laughs) That's what I was drafted as uh, is how it worked. Um, The the scouts come in starting in the fall usually, and I don't know if they still do it this way or not. But uh, with us, you know, they would come in and they wanted to have like one-on-one meetings, sit down, talk with you, see kind of where you were at, um, you know, as as far as mentally. Or I mean, in my in my case, a ton of them asked me which one I would rather do, pitch or hit. And I said, listen, I love this game. I love playing baseball. I love pitching, and I love hitting. I said I can't pick one or the other. I just want a chance, you know, to to play major league baseball. I mean, obviously that's, that's our main goal, our number one goal. And I said, if it's pitching, I'll give you, I'll give you everything I got. If it's hitting, you know, obviously the same, but there's no one or one thing or the other that I prefer to do. I enjoy both while I'm doing them. And, and I tell you, a lot of teams didn't, I don't think they liked that answer a whole lot. They, they were expecting me to say, hitting's fun but I like to pitch or you know I like pitching but hitting I get to play every day or something like that both had their their pros and cons of me when I wasn't hitting good I wanted to pitch you know if I wasn't pitching good like man maybe I maybe my bat will go good you know that's I just I just enjoyed playing the game and uh you know I, I was drafted most teams like me as a pitcher I think more and uh, a couple teams like me to hit and obviously the Rangers drafted me uh as a first baseman and um, you know, I stuck with it, uh, stayed with it, uh, got to focus on one thing instead of trying to do both, which is what I'd done my whole career or, you know, my whole life at that point. So, uh, you know, just kind of rode the hitting train and uh, hadn't, hadn't stopped yet. 
So, Talking with former Bulldog Mitch Borland, and, and Mitch, looking back in those days on a team at Mississippi State that was so good offensively, correct me if I'm wrong, did you not hit a grand slam home run and get credit for a single? <laughs> I did. Uh, Dallas Baptist, <laughs> we lost that game by a run, too, and it counted for a three-run single and a put-out at first base. So, well, uh, I think Ed, yeah. Ed was going back to tag, and uh, and and um, anyway, you guys got cross pass a little bit, and then it was a, it was a three run single. Is that right? That was it. Oh that was man, it. Uh, yeah, three run single to put out. I think Ed had one more ribby than I did that year too. Uh, yeah, I had some bad luck with homers that year. I think I hit you know another one or so in a in a rain out game. Uh, it was kind of a weird year with that but. well looking looking back at your approach then compared to now and i know we all talk about the game slowing down for us and you know you just get more accustomed but talking about approach do you remember how your approach at the plate then compared to what it is now and how have you progressed as a player oh i, I mean it's night and day obviously like i said I, I mean i went in you know i focused on pitching i focused on hitting i i, I really as a as a hitter, I I didn't know, you know, I was I was just up there like I'm I'm gonna get a fastball and I'm gonna see how far I can hit it, you know. I was a little bit wider at the plate, and uh, I mean still a little bit a little bit more spread out today even, but I was a little bit wider at the plate then, and uh, definitely just kind of raw, just trying to figure out a way to put the barrel on the ball, which at times can be a great thing, and I think that that thought simplified and helped me at at that time, I guess going through college, but uh, once I like I said, got to focus on one thing. I started learning a lot more about, you know, the offensive side of it, just, you know, in the box, game planning, uh, you know, what a guy's got, how I'm going to approach him, what I hit well, what I need to lay off of, you know, strength and weaknesses for the hitter. For, or for me uh, as a hitter, strength and uh, weaknesses of the pitcher, how I can get him if I need to scoot up in the box because he's a sinker take, or a cutter guy that I can take away that movement earlier. I mean, just little stuff. Even tips, like if a guy's holding his glove different or flaring on the change, any any little thing like that, you don't you know you don't realize or see that stuff quite as much in in uh, or I didn't in college as I do now. Um, just any little way to kind of slow it down and and put myself in a better position now uh, is helping. But uh, at at that point in my career, I was up there just waiting on it to come over the plate so I could hit it. It seemed like Mitch. One of the common discussions uh, around the country now is the state of baseball overall. I'm curious, as a major league player, how do you and how do other major league guys in the clubhouse see the state of college baseball? Do they see? Do you talk about the college days, and do people still see it as an important part of the overall progression of the game? I think so. You know, you you sit down and talk to guys in the clubhouse, and the guys that played college usually say they would never trade it for anything looking back. Even guys like David Price, for instance. We were teammates in the past, and obviously this guy, first first round, first pick overall, would have never, you know, traded his time at Vandy. Uh, I, I said the same thing. Like, I, I mean, just the development I learned, not just on the field, but off the field. I had to, had to grow up a little bit, learn to live on your own, uh, on your own, learn to, you know, the little stuff, how to make it. I mean, what, what am I going to eat, you know, for, for supper every night? A little more responsibility uh, on yourself with, you know, making sure you, you keep your grades up, keep your, uh, your work done. Also, you know, be at the field at certain times. There's, mom and dad aren't there to remind you, you know, constantly. And, and uh, I think going from high school and leaving and going, who knows? Uh, like for me, for instance, I went to Spokane, Washington, uh, was was my first flight out. That's a long ways from home for a, 
for a small town Mississippi boy, you know, fly out to Spokane, Washington, uh, right out the gates. If I would have done that in high school, uh, it could have been a different story. But I felt like going through my my college time at Mississippi State and being a little more independent, I think that kind of prepped me a little bit for that kind of grind. Talking with Mitch Moreland and Mitch along those lines about uh, you know just kind of growing through the game. You know, you look back at the time in Texas that you spent there. You guys had a lot of success, and now all of a sudden you're you're one of the older guys on the ball club. And I know you had some great veterans that you kind of learned from in Texas. Do you begin to appreciate the game more? Does the game is it more of a grind for you? Just what is the difference now in playing at the major league level? than it was seven years ago for you. Yeah, uh, I am the oldest. Thanks for bringing that up, Bart. I'm the <laughs> oldest on our squad. But, uh, I had to. Yeah, um, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I mean, it's just you go in young, uh, kind of wide-eyed, just trying to impress. feel like I you know, start hitting as soon as I get home from the season before. Just I can work out and uh, full of energy, you know, just ready to ready to work. Now it's, I get down here and just try to get out of camp healthy, as healthy as I can, you know, work. You know, some days I feel like I'm worried more about my fishing spots than I am, uh, what, you know, what I'm trying to do at the field that day. It's important to have like those those older guys to kind of to help you lean on as you as you go through this process. You know, as far as those first couple years, you know, they tell you, well, you can't leave, you know, a spring training game until if you don't have any service time, you need to stay and watch the whole game. Maybe you can pick up on something that. Maybe we worked on that day, whether it's a bunt defense or first and third play or double cut, you know, tandem relay type thing, something like that where you can see it in the game and see, well, okay, that's what we worked on today. We we put it to work in the game. Just little things you can pick up on. Uh, maybe maybe a pitcher, you know, has the same kind of holds every time. That way in the season you get there, you go 1,001, 1,002, maybe grab a base, an extra base, some little stuff like that you can pick up as a young guy, you know, just sitting out there and watching those spring training games. And then as you get older, you know, you, you go in and get your work in, but but also you kind of flip that role and, and those young guys start asking you, like, hey, how do I, you know, how do, I, how do we do this? Or if we run this drill, why do we run it this way? And, uh, you know, I was fortunate to come up on some great teams in Texas and have some great players to look to. You know, Michael Young was off. This guy's a pro on and off the field. You know, did everything the right way. Uh, obviously, Adrian Beltre, the same way. And, you know, there's two guys that I leaned on, still lean on today. If I've got questions about, you know, baseball on and off the field, whatever it may be, know I can still call those guys. And, you know, that, that, that part of it is uh, – that's it's it's always good to have that as you know as a ball player. If you've got a big moment back in 2007 and you couldn't have yourself headed to the plate to swing, who's the guy you wanted up there and you just had to have a base hit? Well, I mean, Ray had a bunch of them, but also a guy that seemed like he had a knack for big moments. I think was Lanetta. You yep. know, looking back, you know, he had some he had some big hits, and uh, I think what he was able to do for us, it was he was kind of undervalued a little bit. But that guy, he stepped up in some big spots and came up with some big hits. He kind of had had a little bit of a swagger to him too that said, you know, don't you know, don't don't mess with us type kind of mentality. And I, I love that about Lanetta. Uh, obviously, Weatherford had a big arm too that year. He was he was huge for us. Um, you know, Pygott stepped up in in a big way for us. Had some great some great uh, starts and stuff all the way down the stretch. Everything we did that year, it just didn't, it wasn't pretty, but we found a way to make it work. And that was that's I think you know we won games with heart, not just talent, and that was that was cool. 
talking with Mitch Moreland. Mitch, we're going to turn you loose, man. We appreciate you hanging out with us. Do you, when you when you get a chance to to get away from the game and get the season over with, what do you do to unwind? Is it is it hunting and fishing? I mean, when I think of uh, Mitch Moreland, you know when I think of Mitch Moreland <laughs> playing at Mississippi State, I, I think of a guy who probably liked to hunt and fish as much as he liked to play baseball. Man, it's uh. That's what I do. That's what I do. It seems like my hunting and fishing time, though, is getting a little bit shorter every year. And uh, I end up having, I mean, I'm still hunting and fishing, but I'm not holding the gun anymore. You know, I got I got three kids and my oldest is, uh, I think he loves it more than I do. So uh, I was baiting hook all weekend because they were down here and uh, my daughter had a frozen fishing pole. So that's kind of what I was working with this, this weekend. But uh, yeah, that's that's my downtime, man. I like the, I like the great outdoors. Awesome. Hey, it's great to talk with you as always. And uh, look forward to talking with you during the season as well. Absolutely, guys. Thank y'all for having me. Yeah, hell state. Hey, thanks, Mitch. And this conversation, of course, brought to you by Heartland Catfish and Jerry's Catfish House in Florence. Back with more on Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back. Final segment of Out of Left Field. Presented by Farm Bureau. And our final segment always brought to you by our great friends at Farm Bureau. Charlie, when we start talking about Bulldog history, you've got some great former Bulldogs that are Farm Bureau agents. You start talking about a Jeffrey Ray. You start talking about a Barry Patton. and I mean, just all around that uh, the guys that had a lot of great success here are having a great success in the industry right now with Farm Bureau. Well, and that's the thing about it. When we talk about Farm Bureau, we're talking about doing business with people we know and that we used to pull for on the athletic fields as well. A lot of really good people that take care of you. All right, let's talk about Quinnipiac, the Bobcats, out of the Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference. Last year, they won the conference tournament championship in a walk-off wild pitch in the 13th inning against Fairfield. They got sent to East Carolina, and they won their opening round ball game 5-4 over East Carolina and then went into the winner's bracket game, had an 8-7 lead over Campbell in the winner's bracket game in Greenville. Gave up two runs, they lost, and they lost the next day to, to East Carolina, eliminated in the tournament. So they went 30-29 and 29 last year, and, and this year picked to finish second in their league, and the, they got some really good players back. They're off to a tough start. They don't play a home game until March the 21st, and so it's, it's not really great weather for baseball right now in the state of Connecticut. It's interesting if you look at Quinnipiac. They are a team, if you were to evaluate them on Friday alone, they look pretty good. They don't give up runs on Fridays. You go through and, you know, the opening weekend, they allow two runs on the Friday game. They allow one run in extra innings in week two, and then coming forward to week three, they allow three runs. And they've done it putting some different guys out there. Nicolosi, the starter, has had missed, missed some starts at least. But on Fridays, they're pretty good. After that, uh, boy, you quickly get into a big TBA problem with those guys, and they give up a lot of runs. Now we're talking double digits on the days after. Yeah, Nicolosi has been the Friday-Saturday guy. Missed a start last week, and so you kind of wait and see. You know, Blake Dakar went last week on a Friday night. Uh, Arthur Carrera was a Saturday guy the first couple of weeks. They moved him to Sunday. Uh, Derek Goldrick was the first two Sunday starters. He was a big arm guy, big 94, 95 fastball. Has just had a bad start. I mean, he's given up a bunch of runs in both of his outings, so they – 
replaced him in the Sunday role with the right-hander in uh, Arthur Carrera. On Saturday, Brandon uh, Garcia, they brought, brought in Brandon Garcia last week. He's a left-hander. He's the only left-hander that uh, that they've started as far as in um, – a non-conference play in the weekends. And they've only played weekends so far. They haven't played a midweek game. So they'll come in here on Thursday night, spend the night, practice here, and then play Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And they don't hit. They have not hit at all. Um, Their team batting average coming in is 204. So this is a team, if you look, not a single regular player has a batting average over 300. This ought to be a weekend where you can get your pitchers feeling really good about themselves. Final non-conference weekend of the year. And do you think this is the week where not playing the Wednesday game against Southern Miss, do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a good thing, honestly, because I think what you're going to see is after this weekend, look where you're going to go. You're going to have Texas Tech kind of looming down there, and then you're going to have that tough opening weekend coming up as well in terms of the opening weekend of SEC play in Arkansas. So, I mean, think about this. Once we wake up on Monday, you're staring games in a seven-day span against Texas Tech twice and Arkansas three times. And, boy, if you gave me three and two right now, I'd almost take it no matter how you wanted to spread them around. Looking at this weekend at the plate, you've got some guys right now that are just trying to figure it out. I mean, offensively, uh, with Foscu off to a 378 start, 14 hits and 37 at bats. Rowdy Jordan had a tough Friday. He's had some some tough outings at the top of the order. Really had that good Saturday game when he went four for five. He's 14 hits and 44 at bats, batting 318. But you only have three guys in the lineup with Foscu, Jordan and Westberg hitting over 300 right now. State only hitting 246 as a team. Now, the good thing is they're holding their opponents to batting just 209. So our pitching has been okay as far as an opponent batting average. And we start looking at those Quinnipiac numbers, you feel really good about what you have going out there, and you can't say it enough. What Kessler has been able to give you on Friday so far has been really good. McLeod has been very, very good on Saturday. And Sarantola is kind of moving the needle toward the right side a good bit. He, he's he's much improved as well. And so you feel good about what you have from a pitching standpoint. Bottom line, though, you got to hit the baseball. And we talked about that coming in. You knew that you may have some issues with pitching and who would be available. The bottom line in college baseball, you got to hit it. And right now the thing – I know that a lot of the pro guys are going to tell me that I shouldn't worry about strikeouts. What does bother me, though, or concern me, is you've got four guys sitting there in your order right now with double-digit strikeouts who are basically striking out 25% of the time they come to the plate. I want to see Mississippi State come into this weekend, put balls hard in play, and, and force an opponent to make some plays, not give up strikeouts. And when you, when you look at a lot of the strikeouts, when you look at a lot of the quick innings, as we've talked about, Charlie, the low numbers of pitch counts in innings, and you've had several innings this year where the opposing team pitcher has thrown less than 10 pitches. Now, it, there are different philosophies with the approach at the plate. One is, you know, you had the very conservative approach by some coaches who try to work pitch counts up early in games. They take some uh, pitches. They take till you get a strike. Um and try to drive up the pitch counts so of the starter to try to get into the back end. You know, this is a very aggressive style that we're seeing now under this Mississippi State team of going up and getting uh, getting quick hacks. You know, I look back the other day, and um, 
you'd seen what four pitches in an inning one time or five pitches in an inning, and Hatcher comes up and grounds a ball out on the first pitch, so they throw six. In some fashions of baseball, you take an offensive timeout, you take till you get a strike. You know, the Yankees are big about that, of, of kind of almost taking till you get a strike to drive up pitch counts. Yeah, and that's almost one where you just is you know third base coach you got to call you down you got to talk a while and you just basically have to extend it bad at that point and if you go back and you look one of the things ironically enough in the opening ball game there were a couple of strikeouts where we actually got eight nine pitches deep in the at bat and at least then if you go down swinging you're working the count you're having a somewhat of a quality at bat even if it doesn't end well. What you just hate to see are when you go through these other ball games and you look struck out on a one-two pitch, looking, by the way, struck out looking on a one-two pitch. And you could, look, we could go through all the time, but now and then you just got to get out there and foul some balls off and grind out some at-bats. Strikeouts looking tells me a, a lot. What's the old saying? Paralysis by analysis. And you're thinking a little bit too much. You're guessing. And, and I think you're seeing that with a couple of guys right now. Of course, you have to watch yourself as the offensive timeouts now because they're limited in games. And so it's not as easy as it used to be of just calling a guy and, and calling a timeout and asking for that offensive time. Charlie enjoyed it as always. We're done already? Done already. Golly, it flew by. Out of left field, presented by Farm Bureau. Appreciate you hanging out with us here tonight as Mississippi State will take on the Bobcats of Quinnipiac coming up this weekend. 